So if you turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, there's a particular uh, verse there that I want you to see and know it's the desire of my heart for my own soul and uh, for our church uh, family. Uh, we do live in a world of significant and urgent needs. We could agree on that, amen? And some of those needs are, are physical and easy to see, and then some of those needs are uh, spiritual and actually greater often than we uh, can fathom. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, uh, the Apostle Peter says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now that's awesome truth right there. But what you'll notice is, so far, what Paul, uh, excuse me, Peter's talking about is what we've been given. We've been granted some things, praise the Lord. We've been granted salvation by grace. None of us are here to boast about what we've done or the promises that we've made. Our eternity is rooted in what he's done for us. Amen? So that's the foundation. But notice what he says next. For this very reason, because God has done something, now notice what he says, make every effort. So now what are we talking about? In light of what he's done, now we're talking about what we're to do. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. And here's where I'm getting at. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you, they guard you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't think of two words that I would less like to describe my life as a follower of Jesus in this generation, in my generation, than ineffective or unfruitful. Not in light of what he's done for me in Christ Jesus. I'm going to invite you to stand at this time. I'm so glad that you're here. Um, without exaggeration, uh, I believe a little bit later on, as we study God's Word, we're going to talk about the most important thing that we can talk about, uh, and that's coming from death to life in Jesus. That's what we'll talk about this morning. So can we pray uh, to that end? Father, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that he is the one, and he alone is the one, one that brings real life. I thank you that he alone brings resurrection. So, Father, I pray in Jesus' name that Christ and his power and his mercy and his goodness and his resurrecting power will be on display and will be known today in this place. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, choir. The message proclaimed is God is faithful. Have you found that to be true in your life? I certainly have. I'm going to invite you at this Time to stand uh, for the reading of God's Word. We're in the Gospel of Mark. We're studying through the Gospel of Mark together, verse by verse, and scene by scene, and on every page and in every verse, we certainly see the faithfulness of our great God displayed. Uh, this morning will be no exception. So here's Mark, chapter 5. We're going to read verses 21 
to 24. We'll study a little bit more than that this morning, but we'll begin there together. Mark chapter 5, verse 21. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And Jesus went with him. Let's pray together. Father, may your resurrection power be known among us today. Thank you that you have all authority and all power, but in particular, this great enemy that we have of death. May we see clearly from the scripture what death is, and then just as clearly how we have a savior and a king who has overcome death. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you may be seated, of course, and uh, there are a few moments in life that, you know, even as they are happening, you recognize in the moments themselves that everything about your life is going to be totally different moving forward. They serve sort of as before and after markers. I've had a few of those kinds of moments, and one in particular when I read this passage comes to my mind. It was in the late summer of 2004. Julie and I were expecting our first child, and in the ultra room, or ultrasound room rather, although the ultra room sounds like a pretty cool place, and the ultrasound room We were told, it's a girl. I remember just about everything about that moment. And one of the things I remember about that moment is my life has just changed. A girl. I was going to be the daddy of a little girl. And when that moment happened, it's like my heart just sort of, I don't know how this happened, but kind of exploded and expanded at the same time. I think I've got a picture. Do we have a picture I can put on the screen? I think, if I did this right, still working this out. We got a thumbs up. We don't have a picture on the screen. Well, if you saw this picture, you'd all just go, ah, what a beautiful picture of my now three little girls. And I'll tell you something about my girls. I'd fight the world for my girls. I love my girls. Love all my children. Abel, I love you too, my main man. He's my main man. I got four children, three of them daddy's girls. And I count it one of my highest privileges that God has entrusted me to be a dad to these precious girls. And when I read this passage, y'all, it affects me. I, I can relate, I can empathize with Jairus. These words like seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter, we'll learn a little bit later on in the passage, she's 12 years old. One of the interesting things is that 
his little girl has been alive for 12 years. The woman that we studied last year has been dealing with the issue of bleeding for 12 years. And here's Jairus, as we're told here in this passage, a ruler of the synagogue. Now, what that means, a few things for us, is one, if he wasn't himself a Pharisee, he was good friends with many of them. And we've been studying through the Gospel of Mark, and what is the Pharisees' disposition towards Jesus? Well, they're hostile to him. They believe that he's come to interrupt everything, that he's leaving things completely different. And by by the way, that's actually really good news, amen? Because Jesus is a disruptor. But he never disrupts to destroy. He disrupts to transform and bring order to disorder. And as we'll see here, life to where there's death. And whatever Jairus has thought about Jesus up to the point of his little girl getting sick unto death, his disposition towards Jesus has completely changed. And now, no matter what his friends might think of Jesus, and Jairus himself a man of influence in that village. I mean, if he's the ruler of the synagogue, that means he's the most influential, well-educated, and well-respected man in the village. But now he's facing something that's beyond the scope of his abilities. And by the way, it's only a matter of time until you face that situation in your own life. Now, in these scenes four in a row that we've been dealing with, we see all the trouble that you can potentially face in your life. One category of trouble is disaster, and it often comes unseen and unexpected. You didn't know that day was going to hold what it holds. That storm with the disciples comes up immediately. It comes up unexpectedly, and it comes with an overwhelming sense. They think that they are going to perish, but Jesus speaks, and the waves obey him. Amen? So disaster is troublesome, but disaster is not ultimate. Then they step out of the storm onto the shore, and immediately there's demons. So there's disaster, then there's demons. And their friends are spiritual forces of wickedness, that their whole uh, game plan, Jesus uh, articulates it. There is an enemy. He's come to steal, kill, and destroy. But I've come that you might have life. And we see with Legion the devastating effects that the spiritual forces of wickedness can have in a family and in a, in a life. But Jesus speaks and the demons flee. And then last week, a little bit later on, as we read in Mark 5, the, the next passage is as, as Jesus is going to Jairus' house, he encounters a woman with a debilitating disease. So there's disaster, there's demons, and then there's disease. And Jesus, in his great mind and power, brings her peace and freedom and healing. And though disasters and demons and disease are powerful enemies and we rejoice that Jesus has demonstrated his authority over them, there is an enemy remaining. And if we can think about it in in this way, if Jesus had authority over disaster and demons and disease, but not over this last enemy, we'd still be in a whole lot of trouble, friends, right? Because that last enemy, and in many ways the greatest enemy, is death. And in this particular instance, as we see, this death involves a child, which I believe there is no greater trouble that's deeper or more heartbreaking in this fallen world than the death of a child. And so we're going to approach this from a particular perspective this morning. Uh, We've said this before, but we're going to approach our study in this way, that when it comes to the work of Jesus, he often does things in the physical world that illustrate and point to deeper spiritual truth. And the reason for that is pretty straightforward in a, in a way I think all of us can understand it. We're born spiritually dead. We'll talk about this more in a moment, what that actually means. 
So if you're Jesus and you're all-knowing and all-powerful, if you're going to teach spiritual truth, you're going to do it through physical means. Does that make sense? Because we're born spiritually dead but physically alive, meaning you still have your five senses, and they function. Sight and hearing and taste and smell and touch. But we're born spiritually dead, so the only way to really understand spiritual truth is through physical means. So I want to speak to you this morning on the basis of this truth. While some of us will have the heartbreaking experience Jairus faced physically, all of us need to be very concerned with the spiritual deadness of those we know and love. So in light of that, I want to give three very clear and urgent exhortations. So just to say on the front end, say it this way, physical death is heart-rending and difficult, but spiritual death is of so much greater significance. And what we want to do as parents, as church family, as followers of the Lord, is, is to be as urgent about spiritual death in the world as Jairus was about his daughter's physical death. Does that make sense? So first exhortation is we have got to be aware of the desperate condition of those who are without Jesus. Now what do we notice about here? Jairus is aware of the desperate condition of his daughter, is he not? When Jesus crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea. Uh, Then came Jairus Seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And then Jesus is going to go with him. Well, we can see and recognize very clearly that Jairus has only one agenda that day, doesn't he? It's not like when he's getting his to-do list and I've got to do this for work and I've got to do No, his daughter is at the point of death and that reality affects everything about his actions. I don't care how other Pharisees are going to criticize me when they learn that I went to Jesus. I'm going to Jesus because he's the only one who can help me right now. He doesn't concern himself with how it's going to look how it's going to be reported, how it's going to come across. I'm going to Jesus no matter what it takes, no matter what this crowd thinks, because I've got nowhere else to go. He knows the situation is desperate. How many sleepless nights has he endured? How many times has he held his daughter's hands? Now, here's the question that we want to ask this morning. Do we have a commensurate sense of urgency and importance when it comes to spiritual condition of those you love? Do you think this way about your children? Do you think this way about your loved ones? And are you able to think in these terms even about yourself? So we're dealing with death, but I want us to deal specifically with spiritual death. In order to do that, I do want to put a passage on the screen from Ephesians that's going to be able to say, what is spiritual death? So this comes from Ephesians chapter 2. Here's what the scripture says. For you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air the spirit who is now at work among the sons 
of disobedience, and just so we're clear on this, among whom we all once walked, carrying out the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. So can we get some theology for a moment together? That'd be all right. Let's get some theology. You've heard of the Holy Trinity, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you know there's also an unholy trinity? The world, the flesh, and the devil. So to understand spiritual death, we have to understand this unholy trinity. And, and you're going to see them all on the screen. So let's start with this first one. You were dead. That's the reality. Now let's unpack this a little bit, right? You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So Paul, just so we're clear, is writing a group of believers, Christians, who are now spiritually alive. So that's why he's saying past tense. Before you were a believer in Jesus, you were dead. And here's what you were doing. You were following the course of of this world. Do you, do you ever heard the a phrase Christianese? Christianese is uh, sometimes a word we use that around church and with other believers we can use words and we can use them so frequently that we don't even really know what they mean anymore. Does that make sense? And one of those words is the world. Sometimes you hear phrases like uh, don't be worldly or be of the or in the world. Let me get it right. Be in the world but not of the world. We, we hear that, but what does that phrase, or that word specifically, world, actually mean? Well, one of my favorite authors is, uh, is, uh, is a man who recently passed away, and I believe went home to be with the Lord. His name's David Pallison. And so I'm going to use his definitions for all three of these, actually, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And here's what his definition of the world is, the Greek word cosmos, He says the world refers to the lies, the false cultural messages, deceitful worldviews, seductive images, misleading role models, and peer pressures that swirl, here's the phrase, around us. Where are all of these things coming? All around us. What are the world's messages? Well, you can do a few simple things. Cut on the television, right? Go to the movies. Cut on the radio. Cut on the podcasts. And by and large, you're going to hear lies, false cultural messages, deceitful worldviews, seductive images, misleading role models, peer pressures that swirl around us. And the world, look at the scripture, has a particular pattern or course to it. When you were dead, you were following the course of this world. So what is the course of this world? Well, here, the scripture, do not be conformed, Romans 12, 1, to this world. So when you're born, guess what begins to happen? It's just like immediate. You begin to be conformed to the pattern of this world. And here's the course. Here's where it will lead every time. The course of this world is to ignore God and exalt yourself. And by the way, do you know where you got that, where we all get that, that prince of the power of the air? That's who he is. That's what makes Satan Satan. I will exalt myself above the most high God. I'll be the most high. When he entered that garden and started speaking to Eve, what did he say? You eat this fruit and you will be like God. You get to determine what's right and what's wrong. And isn't that the message you hear constantly from the world around us? Believe in yourself. 
Friends, I'll tell you this. If you believe in yourself and not in Christ, you're on a road that leads to destruction. Trust yourself. The the course of the world is constantly self-exalting. And by the way, if you follow that pattern, here's a few things you'll never have. Joy, peace. It's 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 a road littered with discouragement, loneliness, isolation, unfulfilled desires, and you keep going down the course because the course of the world promises life but keeps delivering death. And then it just, the pattern keeps going over and over. And that's what's around us. That's the world. Now let's talk about the flesh because the flesh isn't around you. Guess what the flesh is? It is you. It is in you. So back to David Pallison, he says, the flesh refers to our inner enemy, our own disordered impulses that generate lifestyle choices, a configuration of desires and fears and false beliefs that mislead us and animate us. We're too plausible to ourselves. I like that phrase. Too plausible to ourselves. Do you ever find yourself saying things to yourself that if you had a friend who was saying that to themselves, you'd say, man, you're dead wrong about that. But we're very plausible to ourselves. What is that? It's the flesh. That justifies the self. He he says, willingly deceiving ourselves, suppressing the light of conscience, rationalizing what is wrong so that it might seem like the most natural thing in the world. The lifestyle that unfolds can become habitual and assumed. So this happens in a spiritual sense. So we'll use this as a metaphor. Sometimes in a song that we sing about the truth of the gospel or in a statement that we make from the scripture, one of you will say, amen. Amen, that's right. And here's how the world and the flesh work. When the world proclaims its self-exalting message, your flesh says what? Amen. That's right. Glory to self. So you have a world that's around you, and then you have a flesh that's within you. So you know this is true, if you'll think about it. When a child is born into a world that is hostile to God, They're also actually born themselves hostile to God. Have you ever sat a child down and taught them to be selfish? You ever got on their little level and say, Oh, my little sweetheart, you're far too kind. I'd like you to start being a little bit more about yourself. I always say, if you don't believe in the doctrine of total depravity, volunteer and keep the nursery, my friends. Just go back there. Just participate. You, you know why we have nursery workers? They'll kill each other back there if we don't. Over a little car that rolls on the ground, little baby they want to hold, little baby doll, you know what I'm saying? You don't have to teach. Have you ever gone to school and learned to lust? Have you ever uh, dropped your child off at college and said, what are you going to major on? Or what are you going to major in? I've decided I'm going to devote the next four years of my life to studying how I can build a kingdom of myself. You know why you don't teach them that? Why not? You don't have to. Why not? It's how they were born. It's how I was born. It's how you were born. That's why we use the phrase, you must be, and Jesus used, you must be what? Born again. So you've got the world without. You've got the flesh within. And if that weren't already dangerous enough, that's not it. There's the world, the flesh. You see it? Let's uh, let's say, where are you getting flesh? Look at the end. Uh, Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Where do those desires come from? You were born with them. And were by nature, you see it? 
doesn't use the word flesh, but I just want you to know I'm basing everything I say on the scripture. Your nature. It's your nature. That's why you don't have to teach them. It's, it's who you are. So, so just real quick, please hear me. The gospel is not about taking bad people and making them good. It is about taking dead people and making them alive. You don't need an improved nature. You've got to have a new nature. So you can't improve this nature. Now, this is what we do, and, you know, one of the reasons I'm so thankful children are born small, because if they weren't, they would take us all out. They'd come for us all. But let me ask you this. As a child grows, do they grow out of that nature? The answer is no. What we do learn to do is we learn to, uh, on the outside, just color it up a little bit. Do you know what I mean? But man, that selfishness is still there. That destructiveness is still there. That, that uh, lust is still there and always will be unless Jesus gives you a new nature. So friends, let me just, this is the, this is the um, emptiness of all religion that proclaims that you can't improve yourself. You just think about it this way. Jairus is the ruler of the synagogue. He cannot walk into his daughter's room when she's dead and just tell her, why don't you be a little more moral? When she's dead, he cannot walk in there and say, why don't you do a better job of keeping the law? Why not? We all know the answer, don't we? Why not? She's dead. What is she going to do? She doesn't need to be made better I don't mean this disrespectfully, but you could take that dead body and, and sort of make it try to feed itself, but it's dead. It doesn't need to be improved. The only solution for death is life. So there's the world, there's the flesh, and then there's the devil. See that here. Not only were they following the course of this world, they're following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, just so we're again clear on that. So who is the devil? David Pallison, again, I find helpful. It says, the devil is a dark power, the dark power that works backstage in the world and in hearts. The enemy gives lies and desires their uncanny, enslaving, and binding power. The deceiver and enslaver work hand-in-hand with social forces and the heart's impulses. What is he saying? The devil plays the two, the world and the flesh, together to enslave you, all the while deceiving you into thinking, I'm really free now. And do you see it? Can you perceive that? That there is an enemy using the fallen world around us with its deceitful desires. And uh, now, in our flesh, in our own nature, we're spiritually dead. This is what it means to be spiritually dead. It means that all the while you may be physically alive, you've got a physical heart that's beating, You've got physical ears that are hearing me. You've got physical kidneys and a brain. But, but, completely dead to the things of God. 
no sensitivity to his word, no desire for him, completely cut off from the God who made you, but you will fill up all of your time with any and everything that's not of him. Because in our own nature, we don't desire him. We desire ourselves and our own satisfaction. And it is, friends, a desperate condition. We haven't read the whole thing yet, though, have we? Man, it's so desperate. But do you see it? God's done something. It says, but God... Not with a little bit of mercy. Being rich in mercy. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ by grace. You have been saved. God has acted where we were both unable and quite frankly unwilling to act. The first step out of this desperate condition is to realize you're in a desperate condition. And maybe some of you are there this morning because the world and the flesh and the devil have led you astray and deceived you. And you thought, man, this is going to lead to freedom. And it hasn't. There's been no joy on the journey. There's been no satisfaction for your soul. Because, and and can we just say again, this is where we all were. We were all like this. But I want to assure you that though we are born following the course of the world, praise God by his grace, he can put you on another course. It's not the only path. Jesus can redeem. And he's come that we might have life. So are we urgent about these things? Are you urgent about this when it comes to your children? Your child's greatest need, friend, is not to excel academically or athletically. Your child's greatest need is to live. Your your child's greatest need, or to expand it out, your greatest need, your loved one's greatest need, is not physical. It is to see and know Jesus. Has anybody been rescued from this condition and able to say, man, this has been my life. I was dead in my trespasses and sins, but God has been merciful to me. What does it matter? Jesus said this. What does it matter? If you gain the whole world, and what? Forfeit your soul. So it's my first point. Do we have desperation about the spiritual condition of the people around us? Are you, so here's the check, in, are you desperate about the spiritual condition of those you know and love? Because a chief Strategy, I believe, of the enemy is just let's let, let's let the church of Jesus Christ be something other than desperate about the spiritual condition of the world that they live in. Second point, quickly, is this. We must steadfastly keep Jesus as the source of all our hope for ourselves and those we love. We must steadfastly keep Jesus as the source, not a a source, not supplemental, not one of many, but as the source of all our hope for ourselves and those we love. And by that, we uh, return here to uh, Mark chapter 5. You can get a sense of Jairus, can't you? I've got his attention. He's decided to come with me. And then there's this interruption. 
And the interruption is the woman with the bleeding, right? That she's got a desperate condition too. And so Jesus starts off to Jairus' house, but before they can get to Jairus' house, they're interrupted by this woman with the bleeding. Now, we studied her last Sunday, so we won't go into detail against that again. But you have to understand, Jairus is operating under an assumption. He says, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. So he feels like he's up against the clock. And we got to get there before what happens? Before she dies. Because if she dies, then there's no longer anything Jesus can do. And then this woman with the bleeding, and can't you just see Jairus pacing over there, gritting his teeth. He doesn't want to be rude. <laughs> he doesn't want to be disrespectful. But you can almost feel him saying, can we be done with this situation? And then it says down here in verse 35, while, Je- while he was still speaking, Jesus is talking to the woman with the issue of bleeding. There came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? So we must steadfastly keep Jesus as the source and the only source for all our hope, for our children, for our own souls, and for those that we love. Now here's what the trajectory has been. Jairus had gotten there. It's just a practical spiritual battle in our lives. He'd gotten to the point that he said, there's nobody who can help me but Jesus. But then a couple things that's just practical for our lives. Sometimes we think Jesus has some power, but we underestimate exactly how much power he has. Because Jairus put a little qualifier, Jesus can help, but not if she dies. And what I want you to know is, there is no situation that is beyond the authority and power of Jesus. That's what he's about to display. Now, he's healed a sick lady. He's done that. They believe he can do that. But what about if somebody dies? And that's what the issue is going to be. Friends, can we just be steadfast about this? As in Second Peter, it's one of the qualities that the Scripture says we need to be increasing in. So let's increase in our steadfastness. We don't have any hope outside of Jesus. So we can understand this perspective from Jairus. He can't at that moment when his daughter is dying, it doesn't matter how much money he has. But I will tell you this, we continue to put a whole lot of hope in money as a people. But when she's dead, guess what doesn't matter? How much money Jairus has. He can't go to the military. He can't go to the Romans and say, can you bring some military might and change this? He can't go to the uh, synagogue. Or to the teacher. I mean, he is the teacher. What religious teacher is going to help him? And he can't go to the political leaders. They're not going to help. And can I just also tell you, because I believe that this is a maybe a coping mechanism that we've adopted in our generation, he can't go to avoidance. Sometimes there are desperate things that we need to deal with that we just like, I just think, in fact, I'll just check out right now and stream Netflix for the next day. I don't want to deal with death and the spiritual realities. And so I'm just going to numb my mind and my soul so I avoid these things. What I'd tell you is whether it's money or education or political leaders or military might or the strategy of avoidance, all of those things are insufficient for this issue. Can't deal with death. But overhearing verse 36... By the, by the way, just real quick, 
Jairus received some well-meaning counsel from a well-meaning friend that was not reliable. And I do want to say on behalf of this passage, and sometimes in my own experience, you need to be very discerning because frequently you will receive some well-meaning counsel from some well-meaning people, but if the end of it is step away from Jesus, that's dangerous counsel. Even if you feel like that's some coming from a good place. Do you know what I mean? Some of the most destructive counsel you'll ever hear comes from a well-meaning friend. So the well-meaning friend says, don't trouble because he's what? Don't trouble the who? Teacher. Don't trouble the teacher. Now, if he's just a teacher, this would be trouble. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. So when you know something is wrong, it's very important that you understand and are able to discern where you look to for help. Because here's again, unreliable sources. Your money, your health, your <laughs> intellect. Uh, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom or the mighty man boast in his mind or the strong man boast in his strength. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he knows and understands the Lord. I appreciate what the Apostle Paul said to the church at Corinth. I have purpose to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. And why is Jairus on the shoreline? Because when he was desperate, he realized everything else he had hoped and trusted in was insufficient when it comes to matters of life and death. So Jesus, third point, last point, is we must trust the power of Jesus to bring life or we will be overcome by fear. Verse 37, he allowed no one to follow. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of Jesus. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion Man, it's such a devastating scene. People weeping and wailing loudly. We, when he had entered, he said, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. He put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately, the girl got up and began talking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. It's powerful, isn't it? So we must trust the power of Jesus to bring life to our children, the power of Jesus to bring life when we were spiritually dead. Who else can walk in the room and change things at this point? Nobody. Nobody else can step in the room and change what has happened except for Jesus. And what I want you to see, back to spiritual truth, is that Jesus, has he overcome the world? 
Has he overcome the world? Absolutely. Because when he was born, he was born with, and in the incarnation, he has a heart physically. He's got the five senses, but what about his nature? Well, friends, his nature is not like yours. His nature is not like mine. He's born of a virgin. He doesn't come down from that line of Adam that rebelled against God. He is God. He's come in the flesh, and his nature is the nature of God because he is God. And so from the get-go, he doesn't follow that pattern. He never exalts himself. He's always submitting to the Father. He's never sinning. He's never disobeying. He's not following the pattern of the world. Does he overcome the flesh? For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, which is saying what I just said from the Scripture. He came as a person, but he didn't, he came as a man, but he doesn't have the sinful flesh. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Has he overcome the flesh? Absolutely. And then third, has Jesus overcome the devil? Remember the devil came to him in the wilderness and tried to tempt him, offered everything that he could, offered him from the lust of the flesh, turn these stones into bread and eat, have a physical appetite that's greater than your spiritual appetite. And Jesus said, no, it's written. It's written. You will not live by bread alone. I'm going to live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of my father. Then he says, well, if you'll just bow down and worship me, I'm the prince of the power of the air. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus says, no, I'm not following that course. I'm not following that course. And then if you'll put yourself on the pinnacle of the temple and throw yourself off. And Jesus says, no. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He's the king. He's the Messiah. He's overcome the devil. I I love this picture that we have here in verse 41. The law says, don't touch a dead person. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, takes her by the hand. It's his compassion. And then he displays his mind. Talitha kumi, that's really a term of endearment. Remember, he said to the woman with the issue of bleeding, my daughter, a term of endearment. And then with this little girl, it's, it's, uh, it's a phrase, really, my little lamb, my little lamb. Arise. And immediately the girl got up. Do you see his compassion and his power? And this... All the Gospels are written in such a way that everything you read in them is pointing you forward to the cross. And what I want you to see is is a picture of an exchange that's going to go on here. This is what Jesus does at the cross. He reaches out and he says, I'm going to trade places with you. He's got no sin. He's going to take on the sin. Make sense? I'm not God the flesh, but all the consequences. You are a child of wrath. I'm going to take the wrath. What you deserve, I'm going to take. But do you see, to, be, to take it on doesn't mean to be overcome by it. If Jesus says, you're a little lamb, I'm going to arise. Jesus is going to go to the cross and be the lamb of God. I will take your sin. I will take your suffering. I will take it. I will bear the wrath. But I will not be overcome by it. I will go to the tomb, but I am going to walk out. How do you know? How do you know if you're spiritually dead or spiritually alive? I think we get a little picture here. I don't think it's a throwaway factor. 
couple things. Let's just finish the study. Uh, immediately the girl got up and began walking. How's your walk going? They were immediately overcome with amazement. He strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. So here's a picture for us. How do you know if you're spiritually alive or spiritually dead? Let's ask it this way. What is your appetite? What do you desire? You see, when you're dead, oh, I keep pointing to the screen. The verse is long gone, isn't it? <laughs> Y'all are so kind. You never told me that. So patient with me. Thank you. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and we're by nature children of wrath. That's the appetite you come with. Remember Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger again. That's not so. I just tell you, that's not so with the desires of the flesh. Not only will you never stop hungering, you'll never get enough. That's how the flesh works. You'll never be enough. But with Jesus, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be satisfied. So you just take the last week. What did you hunger for? What was your appetite? You know, again, we're not talking physically. We're talking about spiritual. When you can think about whatever you want to think about, what, it is that, what is it that you think about? Do you have an appetite for his word? Just honestly, friends, it's not possible to be spiritually alive and have no spiritual appetite. Now, she is given something to eat. So can we just see this? Jesus brings life and then Jesus sustains life. You come born again with an appetite. So, just to say it clearly from the scripture, when you are born, you're born spiritually dead. When you're born again, you're now spiritually alive. So the new birth is not getting new religion, it's getting new life. Being born again is not an improvement in your old nature, but the creation of a new nature. Does that make sense? That's the gospel. That's what Jesus will do. It's an exchange, not just that I'm taking your sin, but now I'm giving you spiritual life. So now the world, the flesh, and the devil are overcome. Here's how you know if you're spiritually alive. What are you drawn to? If the world has false messages, are you now drawn? And what does your heart say amen to? When you hear the world's messages, are you now increasingly saying, that's a lie? That's false. That lie came from the pit of hell. I'm not going to have more trust in myself. I'm going to have an increasing trust in Jesus. And then now, it's theologically true, your inside has competing natures now. You still have the old self. Romans 8, go read it this afternoon, right? You've got competing natures. And that old nature has to be put to death. How often? All the time. Now, before you were born again, you didn't have the capacity to do that. All you had was the old nature. But now that you're born again, God's instilled in you a new nature. Holy Spirit is in you now. Now, what is the inner testimony that, you're, that you hear? Now, the old nature is going to be with you until you die. And then you're going to permanently put it off. Praise God Almighty for that. Amen? But who speaks clearest and loudest? I'll tell you who does. I can go ahead and tell you the one that you feed more, just truth be told. Let me ask it this way. 
if you have, if you have overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil, how much of an appetite should you tolerate for the world, the flesh, and the devil in your soul? Some of us just need to be liberated from trying to find some sort of 50-50 balance. Just be done. You can just be done. You can be done with the world. How much of its attention, how much of your attention do you think you should devote to it? You just be done. And, and then, do you sense by God's grace and because of his Holy Spirit in you, and now you have spiritual life, that I don't really want to make provision for my flesh anymore. How, many, how much satanic influence should I allow in my life through its de- deception? And, and, and here, here maybe is a take home. Look at Jairus on the shore. In your own soul, do you have a spiritual urgency that parallels his physical urgency. Does that make sense? In other words, here we have a man who's saying, my daughter's about to die. I have got to appeal to Jesus. One of the marks that you've been liberated from the world and no longer reigned over by the flesh and no longer submissive to the devil is now you have a desperation that other people would be liberated out of it too. Case in point, Look at Paul's life. It's what he does with the rest of his life. Because you better believe that the world, the flesh, and the devil will conspire against you to understand, uh, to to have a, a true understanding of what the world and the flesh and the devil are all about. Amen? So, in conclusion, when our condition could not be more desperate you do not lack for a father who has intervened with all of his power we have a father who has done everything in Jesus that's necessary to rescue us redeem us and restore us now you might have asked as we looked at this why does Jesus strictly charge them that no one should know this I mean, isn't this something that you want people to know? And it's because of the truth that we've been talking about. We're always, apart from the grace of God, more aware of physical urgencies than spiritual urgencies. And so when the report goes out, they're not in a place yet. They're not in a place yet where, by and large, they're ready to receive the spiritual truth of the gospel. In other words, what I mean by that is most people, most people who are of the flesh and live in the world do understand that there are hard things going on. But they'll settle for the physical if they can. Does that make sense? They'll settle. In other words, I just want God to do a little something for me so that I can be more comfortable. And if you're not careful, you'll stop there and remain blind. Scripture warns us in 2 Corinthians 5, the God of this world, speaking about Satan, blinds the unbelievers so that they can't see the gospel. So rightly understood, here's last thing. I've said that about five times now, I know. It's an amazing thing that happens in Jairus' house, isn't it? Amazing. But have you been given the grace to see if you're a follower of Jesus, God's done something greater in you than what he did in Jairus' house. 
rich in mercy, raised us up with him and has seated us in the heavenly places that in the coming ages he might display, remember Satan blinds, he wants to display the immeasurable riches of his kindness in, uh, towards us in Christ Jesus. It's by grace you have been saved through faith. It is the gift of God. We're going to have an invitation and the invitation is as clear as I can make it. If you've never come to Jesus for life, come to Jesus for life. If today, the, how the Holy Spirit does it, has used the word of God to reveal to you the need that you have for salvation in Christ, that you are a child of wrath by nature, but Jesus has intervened by God's mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. When you're dead, Christ has come that you might have life be my joy to stand right here at the front the invitation happens you don't have to hesitate you don't have to if the holy spirit's at work in you you come we'll talk we'll pray for the believer in jesus it's worth taking this inventory how much of your flesh the old nature should you make provision for maybe this morning you say i've just i'm just still have an appetite for the flesh and i keep spoon feeding the flesh put to death the deeds of the body by the spirit or maybe you're understanding, I need to remember again and again that Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He, made the, he came to make dead people alive. Stand together. We're going to pray together. And as we have an invitation, some of you might have a little gyrus in you, some desperation in you, and you may want to come and pray for someone that you deeply love that is spiritually lost. And you might want to come and implore earnestly, Jesus Will you bring life? Father, I thank you for Jesus, that he has overcome. He's overcome death. He's gone to the cross, though he had no sin of his own. He suffered as if my sin were his. I was a child of wrath. He was the son of righteousness. So he died the death that I deserved to give me the life I would have never earned on my own. I pray you would increase our steadfastness of hope in Jesus. Help us not to have 90% of hope in Jesus and 10% of ourselves, that we're all in. So when even well-meaning counsel comes our way and says, stop trying the Jesus thing, we would be steadfast and say, we've got nowhere else to go. He alone has power. He alone has power to bring death, to defeat death and bring life. He alone has power of restoration, of reconciliation. He alone is mighty to save. And I do ask in the name of Jesus that if there be anybody here and the Holy Spirit is revealing, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You've believed the lies of the world and your flesh has told you things that aren't true. But you can be free from the dominion of that prince of the power of the air. And you can come to the prince of peace. And he can set you on a different course. One that will lead to glory. I ask for the power of the gospel. And the goodness of God to be at work among us at the invitation. In Jesus' name, amen.